on this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Drew Johnson about biblical philosophy. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what is philosophy and what do you mean by a biblical philosophy? Does the Bible really have its own distinct philosophy? Does it really utilize Platonism or Aristotelianism at all? How might modern philosophies map back onto Scripture? What do the Hebrew Scriptures and scientific epistemology have to do with each other and this whole conversation? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, and we want to do that by creating an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And we want to uphold all of those things together. So we don't want to just be critical thinkers where we're trying to analyze arguments, but we also want to do it with a particular virtuous disposition of charity and curiosity, where we're interested in what other people are thinking about and saying outside of our own tribal bubble, because I think tribes to some degree are impossible to avoid. But we want to extend the right hand of fellowship to others who affirm the same things as us. When we look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these things that are unifying of all Christians around the globe, we want to emphasize those and say, this, we can agree on this. So we can disagree on some other stuff. Let's, let's have that conversation. Let's talk about that. But let's also remember that we're on the same team. So with that in mind, I'm super excited to introduce you, not to someone who's like completely out of our orbit, but somebody who's like, I think, pretty close to where we are, Dr. Drew Johnson. I think uh, Dr. Johnson, he's done a lot of super interesting things. I remember being introduced to his work when I was taking Jonathan Pennington's, I think it was, I first introduced to him in his Greek exegesis of Matthew class. So talking about, I think your book, Biblical Knowing, was probably the first one mm. that he mentioned. Uh, but maybe maybe it was uh, the one on ritualized knowing. I don't remember. But I remember him emphasizing Dr. Johnson's works. And so then I went and I found it. And I was like, wow, this stuff is really interesting and really cool. And it's unique among philosophy. So I think I'm in the analytic philosophy sort of world. I think you're kind of like somewhere in this external orbit, which is really cool. So it touches analytic philosophy, but it's not analytic philosophy. So I'm excited to talk to him just about biblical philosophy today. Before we do that, though, Dr. Johnson, can you give me just a little bit of a background? Where are you now? What do you teach? And then maybe what got you interested in thinking about this intersection between the Bible and philosophy? Uh, yeah, well, thanks for that introduction. And also, I'm I'm kind of honored uh, to like that you're giving any attention to this work whatsoever. Not even my work, but just this idea because I think it's so important, and I feel like you guys get it in a way that a lot of people don't. So I really appreciate that. Um, I'm a uh, an associate professor of biblical and theological studies here at the King's College in New York City. So we're right at Broadway and Wall Street. If you've ever visited that intersection, you probably know where Trinity Church is. We're just catty corner from there. Catty corner from Trinity Church and the Stock Exchange. So you can just make what you want of that. Um, and uh, and I run the, uh, the Center for Hebraic Thought, which we started to basically get people thinking about the intellectual world of the Bible and the Bible as an intellectually formative. And by intellectual, I mean everything that Paul means by spiritual, intellectual, physical, communitarian, etc. So that's 
uh, big I intellectual, um, all inclusive. And that's uh, really been our trick is get the Christians, it sounds horrible to say this, but to get Christians to take the Bible even more seriously than they think they do right now. So we're going to talk today about your book, uh, Biblical Philosophy. So I suppose a a good place to start would be for you to answer for us, um, in your estimation, what counts as uh, philosophy and what do you mean by biblical philosophy in relation to maybe what comes to uh, someone's mind when they think philosophy um, what do you mean distinctively by biblical philosophy? Yeah, I should caveat this. The the, the title, as everybody knows who publishes a book, uh, you don't have say in the contract over the title. That's the publishers. But I did actually kind of like that. It's more provocative than I probably would have chosen. Uh, I think I had a much more tame title that I had suggested. But they said, look, you're trying to – That's this is what you're trying to do is do a biblical philosophy. So um, what I mean – and I. It's some for some philosophers they just can't hear this because it doesn't jive with the way they think about things. But I think if I say, I mean the indigenous philosophical thinking with of the biblical authors within the biblical text expressed by the biblical text, um, that's the intellectual world I'm interested in. So you can say it, you know, ways like. Surely the biblical authors had thoughts about theories of knowledge and metaphysics and what are the invisible forces that tie things together? How do we know that? How do we know that with confidence? Um, and and which how do we know it with confidence brings in logic, rigor, rigor justification, like all of these issues, truth, uh, truth bearing, all that kind of stuff. And so I want to look at how they slice and dice the world. Um, I worked in analytic philosophy for a few years and – I was a little shocked after I came out of seminary and went into analytic philosophy that they had no real new questions and their answers weren't really any better than what the biblical authors were giving. In fact, I thought the biblical authors were giving more coherent and cohesive answers uh, to most of the same uh, philosophical problems. So uh, when I say biblical philosophy, I mean the stuff inside uh, of scripture that is unique to scripture and that sets it apart from what's going on in the ancient Near East and then the later uh, Hellenist and uh, Hellenistic traditions. Yeah, that's really good. So when we come to, I guess, to some degree, your thesis, does the Bible really have its own distinct philosophy that's that's distinctive from uh, Platonism or Aristotelianism or others? And if so, what you, I think you've talked about the center, I mean, you run the Center for Hebraic Thought, which if you guys haven't checked that out, go check it out. Um, is there really a Hebraic philosophical style? Is that something that you and others would say is true? Yeah, and I, I kind of hype it up in the book. Like, So part of the book is having to gas up certain ideas that have already been floating around for a long time and help people understand that, you know, kind of like I'm not actually saying this is what a lot of people have noticed. I'm just amplifying what a lot of people have noticed in some ways. So it's really, I, you know, I belong to this work group, which I'm, we're going to meet in Germany this summer. But it's a Syriologist and Egyptologist and Hebrew Bible people. And we're working on intellectual the intellectual worlds of those regions. Um, and, I mean, it's just night and day the kinds of discussions we're having, though. Uh, you know, when you look at what Egyptologists, when they're trying to look at, like, is there a view of truth? <clears throat> is there a view of metaphysics of time? Is there a view of um, – Knowledge, uh, like you know, name your philosophical topic. Ethics, you, can, you know, they're they're a little bit clearer on ethics because they do have some wisdom literature. But and and the same thing in Mesopotamia. I mean, we have thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of tablets of text. Um, 
And these people are really trying their best to eke out some kind of second-order reasoning, reasoning about the nature of reality beyond, you know, beyond our just empirical experience with it. And then, you know, when the Hebrew Bible guys, you know, when it's our turn to talk, we're just like uh, turning page after page. It's right there, you know, like we're just working through it. And I mean, there, there's like an embarrassment of, of riches, as Christians like to say, um, uh, a philosophical thought. It's just very different. Uh, it's different than the way Mesopotamians are thinking about the world. It's different than the way Egyptians. And in some way, you know, in the ancient Near Eastern studies world, they put the Hebrew Bible over with the Greco-Roman tradition. They say it looks like that over there because that's shrewd slicing and dicing of ideas. It has what they call the skeptical mood and this critical intellectualism are the two words that I think add, you know, really capture what's going on in the Hebrew Bible. And unless you study all of these texts, it's really hard to see how crazily different the Hebrew texts are and then how I think the New Testament follows in a lot of what the Hebrew Bible is doing. So as you noted, the you, the question you said is, is there a Hebraic style? And the argument I make is there there are these kind of genetic markers of both modes of reasoning and convictions about what must be true or mu- what must be the case in order for these modes to work that are like genetic markers. And when you see those genetic markers lined up, you say like, hey, this, this feels very uniquely Hebrew. Um, in the same way that, you know, if you gave Somebody who'd read a lot of Stoic philosophy, but for some reason had never read Seneca, you know, if they or or maybe just Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. After a while, you'd be like, "This feels very Stoic." Um, you know, I'm not sure what this guy is on about, but this, he's got to be some sort of Stoic. I think the same way um, with Hebrew reasoning and ph- philosophizing, you can detect their unique way of of getting into topics and thinking about the nature of reality beyond our experience of it. Yeah, that's good. So, one thing I want to ask you. There's been at least, I feel like over the last couple of years, a almost a resurgence in wanting to study Platonic thought, Aristotelian mm. thought, and oh, how yeah. it fits with Christianity. In your estimation, does the Hebrew Scripture or the New Testament, are they actively, intentionally utilizing Platonism or Aristotelianism or other philosophical schools, Stoicism and others? For some reason, I feel like Stoicism has gotten the short end of the stick. They don't get mentioned ever. So what is the Bible really using, and how much is it using of those traditions? Yeah, I mean, when we say the Bible, you know, it depends on whose Bible, uh, which community, you know, whose Bible. And so if we talk about the, you know, the the Catholic and the Orthodox churches, their Bible would say absolutely they're using Hellenism. I mean, the uh, the apocryphal texts, the pseudepigraphal texts, the those texts in between the Old Testament and the New Testament of Hellenistic Judaism. Um, you see a, a very heavily a heavy reliance, and by that I mean they're they're taking specifically, you know, in, in the book I try to show how um, several of these texts are taking specifically Deuteronomic ideas. And then, kind of Hellenizing them a bit to to make this other point, um, and I and what's unique about that is they seem to appropriate Hellenistic concepts, and they seem to tacitly accept them as basically good and useful concepts in a way that differs from what, what I would say. Paul, obviously, he's the one everybody's going to go to here, and there's a lot of work recently on Paul as, as just you know, is Paul just another Stoic um, philosopher? Uh, and so I, I tried to look a little bit more closely at Paul with a lot of Pauline scholars. You'll notice I'm, I'm citing very heavily a lot of other Pauline scholars because I just want to show I wasn't making this stuff up. Um, and I think what you actually find with Paul is that he leans most heavily on the Hebraic philosophical tradition 
and then he dresses up in the clothing of Stoic, uh, Stoic and Hellenist thinking as much as he needs to in order for you to understand what he's trying to say. The, the, the way I put it is I teach freshman Old Testament class, right? And so I don't care how much a freshman has read scripture before in their life. They are completely unprepared by what the Hebrew scripture actually says. Like when you sit down and read it closely with them, there's just not enough in 18 years to prepare them for what they're going to encounter there. And so the kinds of questions they ask, you know, uh, like, so does the Torah want me to be ethical? And you're like, well, like, I don't even know how to answer that question because it has so many missing presumptions or hidden, hidden assumptions that aren't really dovetailing with what the Torah is trying to do. And so I'll, I'll usually, you know, at the beginning of the semester, I'll start out with like, let me answer you like this, because I think this is what you'll be able to hear at this point, but know that we need to actually go somewhere else. By the time we get to the end of the semester, we're going to have to have a better answer than this one. And I feel like that's what Paul is constantly doing, saying, let me say it to you this way, because it's the way you need to hear it. Um, but clearly that is not what we're talking about at the end of the day. And I think anybody who's encountered the first couple chapters of First Corinthians knows that he is complicating any kind of simple picture of thinking that he's just appropriating Hellenism and, and moving the ball forward, as it were. So how might uh, modern philosophies map back onto Scripture, and maybe as part of that question, um, help us think through, and I think you kind of led into this a little bit with your previous answer, but um, the, the types of questions that um, Hebraic philosophical style, what, what they're trying to answer, um, the ways that they're answering those questions, the assumptions that they have that maybe are different or, or similar to modern philosophies. Yeah. So what do you mean by modern? Because that's a <clears> – do <throat> you mean like Descartes uh, <laughs> or do you mean like modern, modern? Let's go with modern, modern. But if you want to pull in Descartes for the fun of it, go for it. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean – well, how – Maybe I'd put it this way. How would the Hebrew Bible and then later the the New Testament tradition, which I see as a retrieval movement of the Hebraic philosophy, how would they critique somebody like Descartes? Um, I think they'd come at him quite differently than the way that we might have critiques. Well, maybe not. I don't know if it would be shared or not. But, you know, part of the, the problem would be the assumption that I as an individual can reason my way to anything alone, right? And so they're going to, they're, you know, they're, the epistemology, can I use the word epistemology? Okay. The epistemology of scripture that at least I think the basic one, even though I think there's layers to it that I haven't even explored yet. Um, and Billy Abraham, uh, blessed be his memory, he was constantly pushing me to like, okay, but when when you get to that spot where somebody knows something, like you got to work out what is that thing that they know and how does that work? And he's right. I haven't gotten there yet. But the basic epistemology of scripture always requires a social community um, and submission to that community in order to see things that are being shown to you. And so while I think Descartes is subject to that same epistemology that scripture lays out, he tells a different story of how he thinks it works. So he's <clears throat> while he's by the fireplace wrapping his knuckles on wax, trying to really work his way back, and he's simultaneously rehearsing a deep tradition of classical theistic arguments uh, in order to make you know to grease the gears of his individual reasoning that's happening there. And I think the the biblical authors would say like, oh, enough is stop this, right? Uh, let's let's get back to what's actually going on. If you want to push it into modern modern, I would say Nietzsche actually has surprisingly one of the better biblical epistemologies, although I don't think Nietzsche ever kind of realized this, partly because of his relationship with Franz Overbeck. But um, 
certainly Nietzsche, you know, if you look at his first work, work, um, Birth of Tragedy, I mean, he essentially is saying the Greeks had it right, you know, pre-Socrates, um, because they knew that if you wanted to understand something, you have to put on a play and you have to, uh, you have to narratize it. You have to draw on the emotions. You have to pull on the full person within a community. Uh, and so he had this sensibility, I think, that the biblical authors also had. Um, and he's also and and he's reacting as well to uh, Kant and the neo-Kantian waves of you know we can just reduce this all to pure reason. Of course, a lot of what he's doing is just pure reaction. And so I'm sympathetic in that way as well. Uh, but if you bring it like Frege forward, right, into the analytic world, um, I think the primary problem you're going to run into, at least on epistemology, which is mostly what I've worked on, is that uh, – and, and again, I'll, I, I'm just quoting analytic philosophers at this point um, – when all of your primary thought processes or your thought experiments are an individual person at an individual time with an individual proposition trying to determine it, the individual truth value of that proposition – you're already like so far out of the real world. You have to question like, is anything we're doing, does it have any resonance with reality and the richness of reality? And so I think that's why, as you notice in the book, I always turn to scientific epistemologies because I think scientists have don't have the luxury of romanticizing about reality. They're kind of, they kind of constrain themselves to what's going on in the real world and, and let the real world kick back on them. So Yeah. So, I mean, that's a perfect segue. So talk to me a little bit about the Hebrew scriptures and scientific epistemology and, and what they have to do with each other. Yeah. And of course, it depends on which strand of scientific epistemology. So if you're going popper, this doesn't work as well. Um, but there is a, a longstanding tradition from the early 20th century uh, with uh, – uh, Marjorie Green and Norwood Hansen and Michael Polanyi uh, and uh, Thomas Kuhn eventually picks up on the wave of this. And um, these are people who are basically looking at the modernist scientific uh, myth that, you know, scientists clinically, you know, collect facts. They put the facts in the pile. They sift through the pile to, to figure out theory and develop theories and then test those theories objectively and at a remove um, they they demythologized uh, because they were working scientists or they were philosophers of science, and they said that's not how anybody comes to know anything, much less scientists. Um, and so Michael Polanyi specifically is probably the the most poignant um, proposal of scientific epistemology. Again, as a former chemist, a high level chemist. He just said, look, um, science is actually a tradition where we live – you live in a community. You get biased by that community and the bias, again, kind of like Gadamer, it's a good biasing. It, you know, it's a biasing that allows me to see significance where other people would miss it because I can – you know, Michael Polanyi studied fibers through x-rays, uh, worked with Einstein at one point. And you know, because of his biasing, he understands crystals and fibers, you know – in ways that you and I couldn't even, you know, begin to approach. Um, and that it's by trust in the community. You know, he, he has this famous line that no no scientist in and of themselves knows anything but a fraction of, of what they need to know in order to do the work that they're doing. For the rest, they trust implicitly on the community, that everything the community is doing is true. And so, you know, when you start describing realistically what's going on in the scientific enterprise, uh, like the actual sociology of science, and there are there are anthropologists who stu study this now, um, you, what you see is people who trust one another. They trust the objective reality to report back to them what they've gotten right and what they've gotten wrong. 
Uh, they are steeped in tradition. They use ritual in order to understand the world. Uh, they create rituals called scientific experiments, and they hand those ritual scripts off to their friends and say, try this in your lab, and do you see what I see? Uh, and I think when you put that side by side with what Scripture is doing from Genesis all the way into the eschaton, you see something uh, very similar. In fact, when I was kind of working through a, a biblical theology of knowledge, the only modern theory of epistemology I could find that looked anything like it was scientific epistemology. When I looked in kind of the standard analytic approaches to epistemology, uh, I just ran into hurdle after hurdle where I'm like, well, that doesn't quite fit. That doesn't quite fit. But it happened to be this one specialized group of people who deal with reality uh, in this particular way and affirm that the community is shaping them as they go, and that trust is the grease that gears uh, that that grease. Sorry, it's the grease that greases the gears of uh, the scientific enterprise. That you find affinity uh, with what's going on in scripture, and th- if you push even further, I would argue you can't even have the scientific enterprise without the Hebrew Bible. Um, that conceptually, the Greeks and uh, the 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 Romans a little less so, but the Greeks, you know, outside of Aristotle, uh, you just can't get the conceptual girth you need in the community in order to do what we consider legitimate science today. Will you tease that out a little bit more? What you said there at the end about um, you wouldn't even be able to—I forget exactly how you worded it—you wouldn't even be able to do science without the Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think the closest you get is Aristotle on this uh, front. So, you know, if I were to go to Greeks, Aristotle would be my guy. That's the one I like. Aquinas, I think he's the one who seems to have actually grounded uh, uh, Hellenism in some decent way. But at the end of the day, you know, if if you you think about science as science discusses uh, at the best, the scientific enterprise discusses the invisible features of the world, right? So it's not telling us anything about what we could all see at the bottom of a microscope. It's telling us uh, what is tying, what is explaining what we're seeing, right? Um, and if you begin, you know, if you think about the Hindu or the Buddhist tradition, uh, or even the Hellenist traditions, the the largest parts of the Hellenist tradition, they're beginning with the proposition that none of this is real. Or if it is real, it doesn't matter in any kind of ultimate sense. And the realness of reality it actually hinders you from understanding uh, reality in some way. All right, so there's an initial like metaphysical conceptual block in most uh, metaphysical systems. Hebrew Bible from beginning to end is all pure realism, critical realism saying, nope, nope, objective reality matters. It's actually, it's how God teaches people. God shows up in history objectively really and makes things happen in order to convince people of things. Um, And then other ideas like why would the community matter so much? Why would a community need to be tradition in a particular way? Um, These are all, you know, if the central order of of knowledge is kind of like leveling things out within your soul, uh, it's really hard to get to a community of scientific enterprise. Uh, of the scientific enterprise. Again, I think Aristotle is your best bet, but even he kind of lands on this individualistic, kind of this this naive hope that if you get a bunch of individuals who are rightly ordered, those individuals together will somehow magically, right? And so uh, I think the Hebrew Bible, I think a lot of early 20th century um, philosophy of science is saying like, no, let's explain to you how the community is actually necessary despite the fact that individually they're all logically flawed people and fallible and, um, and, and have all kinds of fractures. Here's how it still works anyway. 
So what would what do you most wish that theologians and biblical scholars would learn about philosophy and then in turn wish philosophers would learn about biblical studies and theology? Because I know even just within theology, sometimes there's a lot of discussion about how things be- can become siloed. Like you have the mm. systematic theologians doing their thing, the biblical studies folks doing their thing, and these disciplines are just um, not— in conversation with one another. So what would you want to say to these different groups? Um, I, well, certainly for theologians, cause I talked to them quite a bit and I've hung out with them quite a bit. Um, I, I say the same thing. It's like, Hey, what the thing that you're saying, like, do you know that the biblical, that there's these Hebrews that lived in the iron age that actually had rich, thick conceptual development on the very thing that you're talking about and you want to jump to Bart, or you want to jump to Aquinas, or you want to jump to Augustine. Um, if you're a theologian, it seems like you should start with the intellectual world of the Bible and then put all of those in conversation with it. Um, but if you make this move where you just say, well, the Bible is the oracles of God, and then you create this new metaphysic where it's doing this weird kind of, you know, almost sutra-like uh, work for you, uh, which allows you to proof text it and do all kinds of other weird stuff. Um I'm not saying systematic theologians are guilty of all of this, but if that's kind of your framework is like, well, we have to true this up with the Bible, but uh, the real uh, theological work is done with the history of reception of uh, theology. I just say, actually, the history of reception begins in Exodus because Exodus is clearly has a philosophical development of things that are being uh, said in in Genesis. And and Deuteronomy is certainly a rich theological development of what happens before it. And then Isaiah is another theological development. And so I think just attending to the theology within Scripture and the the philosophical and theological developments going on there, you'll see how they think about what's been said before, how they think about what's happened. And then you'll, you know, the rearview mirror becomes the headlights in this analogy for uh, their thinking. Um. And for biblical scholars, I mean, you know, look, I did a, I did a master's after my MDiv. I did a master's in analytic philosophy at a very good institution, um, and they told me when I came in, they said, "Look, we know you're like a pastor and you're a Christian," and they were just very honest. They're like, "We're all atheists here, <laughs> and we only do analytic philosophy." I was so naive, d- dumb at that point. I didn't know what that meant. I'd never taken a philosophy class. Uh, and so I was like, oh, okay, I like to an- analyze things. Uh, that should work out well. And I and I have to tell you, finishing that degree was pretty painful because there were some things, you know, God bless him. I just could I just, I just could not like handle talking about another thought experiment that I that I didn't think mattered at the end of the day, or explain reality, or I didn't think anybody actually believed, right? Uh, however, looking back, I have come to value that experience a lot more. And the biggest one, I mean, I think everybody should take a little analytic philosophy for if for no other reason, one reason, is you learn that it's actually your moral obligation to think about the best objections to what you're saying and engage those in objections. Like, don't be lazy and throw it on other people, right? Um, I would love to say that it, it systematized my thinking a little bit more, which I'm sure it had that effect. I mean, you can't go through an analytic philosophy program without like getting a little bit more... Um, Uh, getting more protocols developed in your thinking. But actually, I think it was the ethos of analytic philosophy that it's my responsibility to really think through all the variations of what I'm saying and to encounter these objections. Now, you might read that book and say, like, well, it doesn't look like you practice it very well. And that's true. In the biblical philosophy, I was very intentionally 
aware that I could not do that kind of work because I'm setting out a program. I'm trying to change a paradigm. It's a disruptive book in, in many ways. And so I had to make lots of grand claims that I was kind of uncomfortable saying, but uh, friends were pushing me saying like, now you got to lay it all out there, put your cards on the table. And this book was putting my cards on the table and hopefully encouraging other people to pick up the work and and write it out and think through it better than I have and, and correct me where I'm wrong. So Cool. So one thing I wanted to have you tease out a little bit more was how the Hebraic philo- philosophical tradition fits with biblical the idea of biblical truth and mm. the idea of human logic. So I think I some people have said that's maybe more provocative area of your work. So I would just be curious to tease that out a little bit. Yeah. It is really, really hard to get American Christians and British ones um, to, for one second, assume that their conceptuality of truth is not the right one. Or I should say it's not sufficient uh, for what biblical authors want to do. So this is a great example. It's spicy. That's the reason I included it in the book because it's spicy enough that people have to stop and actually think about what's going on. And it's also like from a biblical – like a biblical scholar's perspective, it's rather uncontroversial. Um, it's only controversial if you've appropriated this other view of truth um, that doesn't do all the work and and you can clearly show people like, what do you do with all these instances in, in scripture that don't seem to fit what you're talking about? So what am I talking about? Um, well, it's a very simple idea and and I had been working on it for years and then my buddy Yoram Hazoni had, had this phrase uh, that he, I, he's, I don't know, he said it to me at one point, but Truth is basically just something being what it ought to be over time and circumstance. It's really like a, a, a true spouse, right? Being true to your wife or being true to your husband over time and circumstance, over when it's um, the parable of the uh, the man who builds his house on a rock. Like over time and circumstance, like it's gonna uh, it's gonna hold up and be what it ought to be. Which is why you can make sense of you know the famous example Yoram uses is. That's why the biblical authors can say there's a true tent peg, right? Uh, how can a tent peg be true or false? Um, the problem is we bring a binary light switch conceptuality to true and false. Uh, same thing we do with good and evil, by the way. Uh, we like I can't tell you how often I have a student – this is kind of an aside but not really – how often I have a student who says like, well, God can't have anything to do with evil. And I'm like, well, then you should not read the scriptures because they're going to portray God doing evil all the time and not just thinking about it, but like actually doing evil. And he's the, he's the active subject of the verb to do evil, to cause evil even. Um, but if you don't actually know what the text says, then you might think, I mean, I've, I watched an Oxford-trained philosopher stand up in front of a bunch of Jewish scholars and say, well, God can't have anything to do with evil. And all the Jewish scholars are like, looking around going, is she trolling us? What the heck is she talking about? You know, like, what do you do with these 17 instances where God is doing evil, you know? Um, and so I, I think that's, you know, both truth and evil uh, are good instances of the biblical authors clearly have an idea that they are completely comfortable talking about when it comes to these concepts that do not fit they don't overlap perfectly with our concept of something that's either true or either false, which might come from mathematical and engineering con- concepts of true and false and lo- certainly logical concepts of true and false. Um, but they want to talk about – and this is why like in in the Hebrew Bible, they don't talk about true and false prophets, right? 
Uh, so Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy, there, there aren't true and false prophets. In the New Testament, you'll have labels like that, but it, the label seems to assume Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 13 and 18 have been kind of followed out. Um, it, what do they say instead? God says, I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to authenticate them with signs and wonders, and then I'm going to cause them to lie to you. And you have to discern whether they are being true to what to the Torah or speaking presumptuously in, in Deuteronomy 18, or we might say speaking falsely. Um, so, and I would say you even have an ans- uh, an example of that in Nathan, Nathan, who speaks truly to David at some circumstances, but on David's deathbed, he seems to manipulate him in order to get Solomon into the throne. Um, so this, this idea of true is very consistent. It's very thick. It's, it actually creates a word group that we call, uh, emet, which is truth, a munah, which is, uh, like uh, faithful, I guess, is probably the best we can say to that one. Uh, and then amen or aman, that's the one we all know, right? Amen, you know, when we say amen and you're saying true that, truly, truly, right? Even Jesus starts out some of his words with amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, and that, to me, then can explain all of the stuff that analytic definitions of truth are trying to do. So I'd say the analytic definitions of truth actually are uh, good but not sufficient. Uh, they they go don't don't go far enough. Uh, and so the broader umbrella of truth is the one that I'm interested in there. And which then you can start saying things like, well, are there any cases where something really is either true and false and can't be otherwise? And I'd say yes. I think that you can actually fit those in. Is there some way in which correspondence theory makes sense? Yeah, there's absolutely within that view some way in which correspondence makes sense. But if you think correspondence is the theory of truth, then you're already like stepped out of line with what's going on in scripture and you're doing something else. And what I challenge theologians with is like it might be the case that what you're saying actually lines up with what's going on in scripture. But do you want that to be the true the, the case accidentally or do you want that to be the case necessarily? Do you actually want to see the necessary connections between bi- biblical conceptuality and your thinking? Or are you just happy with it being accidental? I mean, there's one very famous Christian philosopher who I read him and I'm just like, I think actually you're tapping really deeply into what scripture's teaching. But when I see the scriptures he quotes, I'm like, I don't think you understand at all how scripture connects to what you're doing. I think you just have an intuitive sense of what's going on here. So I think theologians should have necessary connections, not accidental connections to scripture. That would be my, my challenge. That sounds horrible, but <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's actually really helpful. Um, another thing, I guess, on sort of the practical side, uh, what advice would you have for pastors and students who want to blend these two things together, mm. um, but may, in their ministries or in their studies, but don't know where to begin? Yeah, um, I think part of it is your scripture reading, the way you read scripture. I, I think there th- now this is growing in popularity, and if you went to Southern Seminary, I'm sure you encountered some of this uh, literary approach to scripture. I think is really helpful because you because the what the literary approach to scripture does on the best of days, the good versions of it, um, is it says, oh, this isn't just oracle, but it's oracle that's been crafted according to like standard rules of literature in some ways, even though the Hebrew Bible creates its own rules for literature in some ways and genres. Um, which means that I have to submit to their way of telling me things. So um, if you read with that in mind and you read with a question in mind, like my 
my dissertation, which was on epistemology and the, and the Pentateuch and the Gospel of Mark, all I did was r- read through all of those texts with one question in mind. What do they have to say about knowledge? Who knows what and how and in what situation? I mean, literally, that was my only question. And that was that was my research question, which I could not believe many people outside of John Calvin had really worked out. Um, and so as I read forward, I just paid attention like, oh, okay, well, knowledge of good and evil, that's pretty heavy-handed intro, right? Like, uh, And then you, you know, keep going forward. Okay, Abraham uh, is like, how can I know that, that I shall possess this land? Okay, that's pretty obvious. Okay, let's see what happens there. And and so anybody can do this. I mean, I have a friend who's like has an eighth-grade education from Brazil and was a crackhead in Toronto for years before he became a Christian. He does this all the time. He, he walks through Scripture and says like, okay, what's their conceptuality of truth? What's their conceptuality of falsehood? He doesn't know the Hebrew or the Greek. He just reads it over and over with these big questions in mind. And what what you see is an image emerges where they you're like, oh, wait, they have a lot to say about this. Um, even recently, we had an article on the biblical mind uh, that we commissioned because we heard, I won't mention any names, but a very famous church in New York City, the pastor was asked um, by a parishioner, what does the Bible have to say? Like, how does it teach us how to repent? And this pastor said, oh, it, it doesn't really, the Bible doesn't really teach us how to repent. Um, you know, it just says that we should, but it doesn't tell us how exactly the mechanics of it. Um, and me and a, f- a colleague of mine were, you know, kind of freaking out going like, Nehemiah much? I mean, like, like there are actually long repentance passages. Uh, uh, David, you know, the the assumption was, uh, oh, you start in the New Testament, really scanning through, scanning, scanning, can't, yeah, I mean, it says we should, but it doesn't have any, and you have these models of repentance in there, but unless you ask that question and read through with that question, um, and unless you know scripture so well that you kind of have a Rolodex, you can ask the question and just start working through it. But for most of us, we have to read with a question, which makes the scripture way more spicy as well. Like, uh, you realize it has some controversial takes on things. You realize that it probably has more to say than we give it credit for. Even if you say, like, I was going to work on, instead, I, actually, for this book, I proposed, I wrote this on a fellowship at St. Andrews in Scotland, but I actually proposed to write a metaphysics of time in the Hebrew Bible. So glad I didn't do that, because um, Ryan Mullins was there at the same time, and the more I talked to him, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not up for that. Um, but if you ask that question, is there, like, does time exist? Do the biblical authors believe time is a thing, that it exists and that it's important for things, right? I think you actually get a fairly thick metaphysics of time um, that you could put in conversations with modern metaphysical uh, views of time. I did have, by the way, in the original book, I did have a, a chapter on metaphysics, which um, Billy Abraham and the other reviewer, reviewer number two, said, cut that immediately. Um because it was just one a one-off chapter. I was trying to do, you know, like you do. You try to do too much in one chapter, and they're like, you got this whole epistemology thing going on. Just stay on that. So so there's lots of work to be done here, and I hope people who listen to you guys uh, will pick this up and start working on this stuff. Yeah, I, I'd love to read a metaphysics of time uh, from <laughs> Hebrew Scripture. So if you ever want to write that, I will absolutely well, read it. <laughs> some people have worked on it, so there's some stuff to read, uh, but I think— um, yeah, it's 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 what you bring to the game, right? What you think is already going on, what you presume is already going on in the text becomes part of the problem. So uh, I think a fresh one needs to be written. So whoever's out there listening that gets jazzed about time, you should start writing that. 
So for those who are listening who want to follow along with what you're doing, uh, can you tell me two things? Where are the best places to go to keep up with your work? And then number two, for those who are curious, what's your next project? Oh, um, well, uh, to keep up with my work, we have like the, who cares about my work? Uh, the biblicalmind.org or biblicalmind.org or hebraicthought.org are our two websites where we're kind of we're commissioning essays from people who we think are worth listening to on these topics. And we got all kinds of interesting things going on over there. Um, I am actually revising this summer for the third time a manuscript that was due last January on natural selection in the Bible. So how the biblical authors work out the issue of natural selection. Uh, again, uh, one of those surprising. Uh, I was writing a paper on Darwinism for a conference, and then I was like, wait, uh, natural selection is just competition-fueled scarcity uh, and violence with genetic fit to environment with sexual propagation. Turns out there's only one text in antiquity that combines those three ideas and makes them the center of of the story of the people they're talking about, and that's Genesis and forward. So then I try to I don't even try to figure out why it's the case that they're talking about natural selection. I mean, I do, I do work that out eventually, but um, it is interesting to me that until Wallace and Darwin, the Hebrew, the Torah is the only place that is heavily invested in the connection between sexual propagation, fit to environment, um, and scarcity that fuels violence and competition. So, I, so I've really benefited from your work. One other one, maybe give me. 60 seconds on your work on liturgy or you can take 120 seconds. That's a, I know yeah. that's a huge question, but I think that one is also super interesting. So I want to whet some people's appetites who are listening and saying, I'm super interested in this. So tell me why I should also be interested in that. Yeah. My monograph on this is knowledge by ritual with Eisenbrons, which everybody skips past that. And they're, they read the popular book and they're like, why didn't you do this? That? And I'm like, well, I have a 250 page monograph on it if you're interested, but yeah, it's this idea that, um, again, in the ancient world, the Hebrew Bible is the only one that connects ritual and epistemology. And, and you can think about the rituals that have that you might know or that you will know. Do this in, in order that you might know. And so I kind of just follow that out. Why is ritual and epistemology connected? And then, again, put it in conversation with the scientific enterprise. It turns out science is also interested in ritual and epistemology and combines those two uh, uniquely. And so that science can be a good uh, a good conversation partner uh, with what's going on in scripture in many ways. Um, and uh, but if I can plug somebody else's work, uh, Josh Cocaine, uh, who is a, a colleague of mine at St. Andrews, is doing fantastic work on liturgy. He's an Anglican minister now, and he's an analytic philosopher, a Kierkegaard scholar. Great, great guy, great thinker, and he's doing really interesting stuff with uh, liturgy and ritual and, and analytic philosophy as well. So I highly recommend everything he's writing. Yeah, I love Joshua. He's He's got the right sort of disposition personally as well yes. as intellectually. Yep. So I love those sort of people. And if, if you're listening to this now, we've talked to Joshua in the past about oh, his okay. work on the social ontology of the church. Yep. So I will try to remember to link to that whenever you guys are listening to this. So you can just click the link and go find it. If you're curious about it, um, I do need to bug him about his work on liturgy, though, to get an episode recorded on that. Yes, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Cool. Well, Drew, this has been awesome. So thank you for taking the time to talk with us. As I think everybody who's been listening can tell, uh, Drew is very articulate and understands what he's talking about and is doing really cool things and is trying to seek to ground our understanding of reality in the scriptures, which I think... Um, probably most of our listeners are very interested in. Uh, I do think some of our listeners are maybe not interested in that, and 
maybe you should be. So go read Drew's stuff and maybe you'll be convinced <laughs> that that is a good approach to all of life. So thanks, Drew, for talking with us. And uh, for everybody who's been listening, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.